series title is The Supremacy of Jesus in All Things, uh, 95 verses, four chapters. How many of you started memorizing the entire book? Thank you. For those who raise your hands, you'll get a prize at the end of the service. I'm up to two verses. 93 to go. As we talked about last week, what's really uh, interesting about the book of Colossians is that most scholars and commentators, when you read uh, their take on Colossians, most agree that Colossians was one of the most profound uh, books that Paul wrote. Um, but remember why he wrote it. The Colossians uh, were starting to drift away. False teachers had come in. Um, uh, other philosophies had, had entered into the picture, and they were drifting away from the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. And so Paul, out of a pastoral heart, based on the information that he received from Epaphras and also the, pa uh, the pastor uh, Archippus, they come and they tell Paul about what's happening. And Paul, out of a pastoral heart, uh, writes this letter to them because Paul's message to them and to us remains that Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. Now last week we looked at the first eight verses of chapter 1, and in there, after the introductions, we realized, particularly through verses 3 through 8, that Paul is constantly talking about the gospel, and that the gospel is not a program, the, the, the gospel is not about a person, the gospel is a person, and it's the person of Jesus. Now in Colossians chapter, nine, verse, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, uh, we get insight as Paul begins to pray for this church. So before we get into the prayer of Paul, I just want to get us our, our minds thinking around this idea of prayer. For those of you who pray, and I encourage you to pray if you are not one who prays, I would certainly recommend praying. But for those of us who pray, if you had to evaluate or assess or think through your prayer life and your prayers, what does the content of your prayer life consist of? What does the content of your prayers consist of? Think about this past week, maybe. This past month. This past year. What is the content of your prayers? In our study of Paul's prayer, we're going to unpack the content of his prayer for the church at Colossae. Paul, although he had never met these folks, had a deep spiritual connection to these folks, and he proves it with this prayer. There was a connection for Paul. In some ways, there was a grieving of Paul to get them back to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. So as he prays, you can hear in the content and the tone of his letter, there is a longing for him for the people of Colossae to come back to the supremacy of Jesus. And I like what Henry Nouwen says about this. He says, I'm beginning to see that much of praying is grieving. Many times when we even pray for ourselves, especially when we pray for other people, and we see that they're either out of the will of God or they're drifting from Jesus, there is a grieving tone that comes to our prayer life for those people and even for ourselves. And you can hear that grieving tone in Paul that Jesus is supreme, Jesus is sufficient, don't listen to other heresies, don't listen to other false teachers, come back. And he longs for them to close the distance from where they are to where God wants them to be. 
So Paul prays for this, and we see this unpacked in verses 9 through 12. Three things, basically, Paul prays for. It's going to be the points of the message. He prays for them to become increasingly sharp in the knowledge of God. Uh, to Also, to not only just know God, and even know God's will, but to actually be obedient to Him. And in that, there would be produced in Him, in them, Christian character. So the title of the message is simply Paul's Prayer, and so before we go any further, let's go to him in prayer. God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity you give us to gather week in and week out. But not just to be together, but to be together with you and you with us. God, we come to this part of the service where we ask you to teach us in all wisdom and all truth. Give us insight into things that we can't see for ourselves, that we need your supernatural work by the power of the Holy Spirit to expose and reveal truth to us, to enlighten our minds, to to convict our hearts, and to be reminded of the power that you've given by your Holy Spirit to live out those truths that you show us. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you, behind you, beside you, that they would hear, that their hearts would receive, and that they would respond to the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 9 through 12, four verses. The points we'll look at as we read, prayer to be increasingly spiritually smart, a prayer to walk in obedience, and a prayer for strength and character. Verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask you that you be, ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. There is so much packed into those four verses. And so as a disclaimer, I want to ask you... um, to go this morning and to jot notes down, references down that connected with you, that resonated with you, uh, maybe scripture verses, and then go back this week and maybe listen to the message again, read the passage again, because there is just so much rich depth in here. The first thing I want to talk about is a prayer of Paul's for the church and for us to be increasingly spiritually smart. Now, what does it mean to be smart? Do you think you're smart? Do you know people who think they're smart? That's the easier question, right? I remember that show that came out a few years ago, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? It seems that we're always testing some ways to find out just how smart we are. Some of us do it through Wordle. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Others of you are nodding. Some of you play Jeopardy. Some of you do trivia. Some people want to be financially smart. Some people want to be computer or tech smart. Some of us have smartphones that reveal how smart we are not. 
Some of us claim to be book smart, that we're well, well read, and we all have people in our lives who are smart about politics and what's really going on. There's this idea in our culture about being smart. So I want to put that smart context with Paul's letter. And here's what I mean when I talk about increasingly spiritually smart. Increasingly spiritual smart means to be proficient, accurate, intelligent, knowledgeable, and applicable in the ways of God, particularly in a certain circumstance or with certain people. But it's an increasing thing. It's a growing thing. Paul prays for the church at Colossae to be increasingly spiritually smart. The reason he talks in this language is because the other false teachers were talking in this language. And he was using words and giving them their true meaning. Satan is so deceptive, he'll use the same words, but they won't have the meaning. I like what one author said. Satan likes to borrow Christian vocabulary, but does not use the Christian dictionary. So Paul is giving true meaning to these words and asking the folks at Colossae and us to become increasingly smart in the knowledge of God. Now verse 9 opens with this, for this reason. Now what is the reason that he's talking about? Well, you have to go back to verse 6 and find out what he's talking about. In verse 6 it says, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Now the it that he's talking about, he's talking about the Colossian church had received it, the gospel, Jesus, and understood it. Paul was convinced through the reports of Epaphras and Archippus that the believers in Colossae were true believers, that they had received Jesus. And Paul says, since you have heard of it, since you have received the gospel, since you are believers in Christ, for this reason, verse 9, for this reason, I pray that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Every believer, every believer needs to have the knowledge of God's will, right? Now, the Greek word translated knowledge here is full knowledge. God wants us to know his will. And not only does he want us to know his will, he wants us to understand his will. Remember what he said, Paul said to the church at Ephesus in chapter 5, verse 17. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If you unpack that a backwards way, it says it is foolish to not understand the will of God. Now think about this. What does this tell us about God? One of the things it tells us about God is that God is not a distant dictator, but he is a God who wants us to know and understand his will. It's not like he's playing this guessing game. It's not like he's playing a shell game. Oop, that's not it. It's not that he's trying to like uh, make us try to figure it out. God wants us to know and understand his will even more than we want to. I thought about this phrase this past week when I got to this part of the message. And I remember Jesus talking in John chapter 15. In verse 15, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, I no longer call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. 
Now listen to this last part. For all the things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. If you're questioning this morning, is it possible to know and understand the will of God? The answer is yes. It is possible. But you and I both know, and many of us can testify to this, when we understand and know the will of God, there will always be a measure of faith and trust in it. God will reveal his will to us, but there's always a measure of faith and knowing and understanding. It's something we'll look at in just a minute in regards to obedience. Now, in verse 9, Paul says this, asking God for this for the church at Colossae. I ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, this word filled is a very cool word, very interesting word. This word uh, filled means completely fulfilled, filled full. It's what Paul uses in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, when he says that we are made complete in Christ, that we are fulfilled, filled full. Now, here's the word picture. It means that we are fully equipped, fully equipped. It's the picture of a ship getting ready to go on a voyage or a ship getting ready to go on a journey, that the ship has everything it possibly needs to make the journey. And so for you and I as believers, Paul is saying you have been fully equipped with everything you possibly need to live out the Christian life for this journey with Jesus. Fully equipped. The believer, John chapter 1, verse 16, for all the fullness of Christ we have received. Grace upon grace. There's another thing about this word filled that's interesting in the New Testament. This word filled does not only mean that we're fully equipped, it also means that we're controlled by. So filled also means controlled by. It's a synonymous term that Paul uses throughout the New Testament, that we're filled by the Spirit, therefore we are to be controlled by the Spirit. If I'm filled with anger, guess what I'm controlled by? Anger. So we must be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. So Paul's prayer then is that I want you to recognize and know and understand that you have been filled full with all the fullness of Jesus, equipped to live the journey out with Jesus, so be controlled by him. How does this take place? How can believers grow in the full knowledge of God's will? I have said in my life, you have probably said in your life, and you've probably heard in your life, what is God's will for my life? Anybody said that? Some may be asking that question this morning in regards to a situation, a circumstance, a relationship, an opportunity, whatever. What is God's will for my life? There are five principles that I want to unpack this morning. And these principles are intended to be used together, not independently, but interdependently of one another. I think it's dangerous for us to make a decision just on one of these principles, but I think all of them need to be included. These are scriptural principles for seeking God's will. And the first one is this, is that we surrender our personal desires. In the sense that, as we seek God's will, it's important to be sure that you're truly and fully open to whatever God wants. 
One author said it this way, if you have already decided what you want to do, and you're only coming to God so he can approve your decision, you're not really seeking his will. It's more about your will. And so to really understand what God is saying to you, you have to be open for God leading you in any direction, even if it's counter to your desire. One author said this, another author said this, when you desire to follow God, when your desire to follow God outweighs your desire for a certain outcome, you are ready to hear from God. So the principle is this, it's not a matter of what we hear, but it's a matter of how we hear it. You remember in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, it says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. So hearing the will of God is about a heart condition. And we have to ask God as we go to him to seek his will, God, what is my heart in this? Is my heart ready to receive your will? The second thing, the second principle, is to meditate on God's word. Psalm 119, 105, many of us memorized it. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But I'm afraid some of us have just kept it as a childhood verse that we memorized and not put it into practice. Where is the knowledge and will of God revealed? In his word. People have asked me, why do I need to study the Bible? Why do I need to read the Bible? Why do I need to meditate on Scripture? It's because you want to know the will of God. And until we understand the will of God, uh, we, will, uh, we will understand the will of God through the Word of God. As we read Scripture, we start to understand God's ways, we start to understand God's heart, and we start to understand His will for our lives. Now, I just need to make sure that we're all on the same page when I talk about the Bible. The Bible is not a book of suggestions. The Bible is the revealed Word of God for the will of God. Uh, And you've heard this analogy before, but I think it's important here. It's been said that feds and the FBI, when they... Uh, look at counterfeit money, they don't study the counterfeits, they study the real thing. And they study it so uh, intently, they become a master of what the real thing looks like, so that when a counterfeit does come, they recognize the counterfeit. That's Paul's prayer. That you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus, his supremacy, his sufficiency, and when anything else comes, you recognize it as counterfeit. That's the will of our lives. That's what the Word does. Now, let me just ask a question in general. How well does the church know the Word of God? How well are we able to know God's Word, to be able to recognize something contrary to it? What time and energy is put into your life because you and I are the church so we have to ask ourselves how much time and energy is put into the word of God so that we can become increasingly spiritually smart about the will of God 
Do you remember what Joshua, uh, God told Joshua, Joshua 1.8? Many of you have memorized it. This book of the law shall not depart from you, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why did he say that? I'm glad you asked. He finishes up and says this. So that you may be careful to do all that is accor- according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Through God's word. Reading and obeying the word of God is the will of God. If you say, God, what is your will for my life? One of the things he's going to say is to read my word. It's the revelation of his promises. It's the truth and depth of the gospel. It's what we judge our lives against. I like what one author said. God puts no premium on ignorance. The third principle is focused time in prayer. The most obvious answer to the question, how can I know God's will for my life, is to simply ask him. Dallas Willard in his book, Hearing God, said this, people are meant to live in an ongoing conversation with God, speaking and being spoken to. James 1.5 in the Living Bible Translation, it says this, if you want to know what God wants you to do, Ask him, and he'll gladly tell you. For he is always ready to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask him. He will not resent it. But when you ask him, be sure that you really expect him to tell you. Another thing about focused prayer, a time of focused prayer, it reveals our heart and our dependency on the Holy Spirit. and a desire to be led by the Holy Spirit. Now, this next principle is going to be one that's a little tough for some of us. In fact, in first service, I said it's going to be like rubbing a cat backwards for some of us. It just just doesn't feel right. Some of you are going to go home and rub a cat backwards this afternoon. (laughs) The fourth principle is this, is that seek input from a community of believers. Proverbs 15, 22, plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. This can be a tough one for some of us. But you and I have not been designed by God to live independently, but interdependently. Over and over in scriptures, there's illustrations, there's analogies that we are the body of Christ, that we are to be together. Therefore, scripture says that we are to bring our, ourselves our sins, our thoughts, our desires, our confusions, our struggles, all of this we bring to our community of believers to discern the will of God for a situation or a circumstance or a relationship. But just like the first point, there has to be humility to receive from your community of believers. Grant, all, all this goes together. That we... Surrender our desires to God's desires. That we read his word. That we spend focused time in prayer. That we ask other believers. But here's a fifth one. Sometimes I don't think gets considered. Think through your decision with a sound mind. Proverbs 14, 15 says this. The prudent carefully consider their steps. One author says this, Sometimes Christians are so focused on hearing from God that they forget to use reason and common sense that he's given. How many of you know 
some really smart people, but would say they have no common sense. God has created reason. He's allowed us to take all these principles, to take all these things, and reason, filter, think, process with careful consideration. Romans 12, 2, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. How? By changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. It's the big picture. When we start thinking that this life is not about me, the purpose of God's will is not about me, the purpose of God's will is about His glory. Knowing and walking in God's will is not about us being fulfilled with purpose as much as it is about God getting the glory that He's due. That was Paul's prayer for Colossae and for us. And it brings us to our next point, is a prayer to walk in obedience. False teachers were giving them all kinds of spiritual knowledge. Do this and know this. But the knowledge wasn't connected to obedience. In the Christian life, knowledge and obedience go together. Believe and obey are almost synonymous terms in the New Testament. When Jesus talked about believing, he also talked about obeying. And what we believe about God dictates how we obey. True spiritual wisdom must affect and infect our daily lives. Listen to what Paul says, verse 10. We become increasingly smart in the things of God. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The truth, knowledge, and will of God is revealed to us so that we will have lives pleasing to God. And not just some areas, in all areas of our life. We study the scripture with the intent to love and live more fully the way Jesus modeled for us. All Bible truths are practical, obeyable, and not just theoretical. Now, some of you English people and grammar people are going, obeyable is not a word. You're right, it's not. But it communicates. It's obeyable. God's truths are obeyable. If we're going to grow in knowledge, grow in our understanding, there has to be the same desire to grow in obedience. And in our obedience, let me just warn each of us that we're not always going to get it right. Now watch what happens. See this picture. We walk in obedience as best we can, and we mess up. And what do we realize? That we need God's grace, and that we need his forgiveness. And what does that do? It points us back to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. Grace is not something that we make people jump through when they mess up in order for us to give them grace that they had to jump through some hoop. That's not the way Jesus treats us. And so you and I are going to mess up in areas of obedience. 
but it drives us right back to the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the cross of Jesus and the gospel, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Now, Paul makes a big, big prayer request for the church at Colossae. He says, I pray that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let that sink in just for a minute. That you and I walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Throughout the New Testament, Paul tells churches, particularly Ephesus and Philippi, Thessalonica, how to walk. Walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of the gospel. Walk worthy of God. And walk to please God. After all, our purpose in the will of God is to please God. And so it begs the question this morning for each of us here. God, in all that you see me doing, in all the thoughts swirling around in my head, all the motives of my heart, God, are they pleasing to you? Christian service, the Christian life, is a result of Christian devotion and an openness to the Lord. Paul goes on to tell the church at Colossae, and out of this you will bear fruit in every good work. It reminds me of John chapter 5, verse 15. Uh, John chapter 15, with the vine and the branches, that we remain in Christ and we produce, uh, God produces fruit in us and through us. Every good work. The final thing Paul prays for is the prayer for strength and character. Listen to verses 11 and 12 again. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. One author said this about our culture today. One of the greatest problems we have seen in our evangelical world today is the emphasis on spiritual knowledge and Christian service without connecting these important matters to personal character. It's not, a ju- it's not enough just to know. It's not enough just to do. It's important who we are, the character behind it all. Now, what's interesting is Paul in the New Testament uses two different Greek words for this word power or energy, that you're strengthened with the power. And the first word is this word dunamis, it's where we get the word dynamite. It's an inherent power. It's a power that comes from within. Like if you hold a stick of dynamite up here, all the power, we know that all the power is within the dynamite. So Paul uses a second word for power, and it's this, this word kratos. And the kratos is manifested power, power from the outside and put forth in action. So the picture is this. We have been fully equipped with the power of God residing inside of every believer. And then God, with the power of the Holy Spirit, ignites that power in us, and it explodes and manifests itself in our lives. This resurrection power that resides in us is lit by the Holy Spirit and explodes and manifests itself in the people around us. Now, what's common for us to think about in in areas of power, especially in Scripture, is to go to the big things, like crossing the Red Sea, David and Goliath, Jonah and the whale. But what does Paul talk about in power? 
he talks about our character. That our character has power. And he uses four words about our character. One commentator said this, The inner victories of the soul are just as great, if not greater, than the public victories recorded in, in biblical history. Proverbs 16.32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Paul's emphasis on God's power is on character. And the first word he uses is patience. Ooh. Some of y'all are being patient with me this morning. The word patience here is endurance when circumstances are difficult. It's the opposite of hopelessness. The word hopelessness is never used in connection with God. Why? Because there are no hopeless situations with God. God does not face difficult circumstances. Jeremiah 32, 37, nothing is impossible with God. Now, how many of you have ever prayed this, heard this, said this? Well, I'm not going to pray for patience. God's going to give me something to be patient about. <laughs> patience really is an action. It's not something passive. Patience is endurance in action. The way Scripture talks about patience is that of a soldier on a battlefield, that he's patient until the battle's over. Or, or that uh, the, the runner on a racetrack, he refuses to quit, but he's patient and he's perseverance. And what do we know about perseverance? Romans 5, 3 and 4, tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance brings what? Proven character. And proven character, hope. Dr. V. Raymond Edmond, late president of Wheaton College, used to remind the students, it's always too soon to quit. And I love what Charles Spurgeon said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. <laughs> There's power in perseverance and patience. The second word he uses is steadfast or long-suffering. Patience and long-suffering are subtly different. Patience has to do with situations and circumstances, and long-suffering has to do with people. Long-suffering has to do with self-restraint. Anybody ever had to do some long-suffering with people? Some self-restraint with people? Moms with kids? Wives with husbands? Husbands with wives? Employers, employees, coaches, teachers? 278? There's a self-restraint, a long-suffering. 2 Peter 3, 9. Think about it. God is long-suffering toward people. Why? Because of his love and grace, 2 Peter 3, 9. Long-suffering is a gift of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22. Later on in our study, we'll see that long-suffering is one of the grace garments that Paul asked the church of Colossae to put on. But it amazes me, sometimes I can have great, perfect patience in these circumstances and blow it up in long-suffering with somebody. Anybody else? Good. Glad I'm not alone. Think about the long-suffering of Jesus. Paul goes on to say a character 
joyously giving thanks to the Father. Paul prayed that the Colossian church would have joy, the strength and power of joy in the midst of circumstances and long-suffering. Christ-like joy is independent of both circumstances and people. Joy is not something that we work up. It's something that the Spirit works in. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. And finally, Paul says a strong, powerful character that needs to be developed is thankfulness. Thankfulness. One of the evidences of spiritual growth and power is increasing depth and repetition of thankfulness. And one of the great things we can be thankful for is how he closes out verse 12 that God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. How? Through the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. When I read this awesome prayer, you can see how deep, how moving, how powerful it is. And here's how I come away with it. I want somebody to be praying that for me. And so I want to ask you, when you pray, as you pray this week, pray for me, Colossians 1, 9 through 12. And pray for yourself, Colossians 9, 1, 9 through 12. Pray for somebody else in your life, Colossians 1, 9 through 12. Seth and the team are going to come, and this morning we're going to do that. We're going to pray, Colossians 1, 9 through 12. You pray where you are. You come up here and pray. But I want to ask you to pray for yourself, pray for somebody else, these things. That there would be an increasingly spiritually smartness, a desire to know and understand the will of God. That there would be a, a sense of obedience to walk in the will of God. A walk in a manner worthy of God, to ask God, what is the condition of my heart? Where is there resistance? Why is there resistance? It's not what we hear. It's how we hear it. What's the condition of our heart? And may God show us his power through our character. Let me pray for us. God, thanks so much for this morning. God, I pray for your spirit, your Holy Spirit, do a supernatural work, the work that only he can do in the hearts and minds and lives of the people here this morning. God, I thank you for your spirit to teach us in all wisdom and truth and empower us to walk in that truth. God, if anybody's here this morning that is resistant, I pray the power of the Holy Spirit would break through in an area of their lives that they would surrender this morning to know, to understand, and to walk in your will for their lives. We trust you with the results of that. Would you take time to pray this morning?